Coming up on this week's show, mystery author John Morgan Wilson joins us to talk about the re-release of his classic, Simple Justice. This is the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. Each week, we bring you exclusive author interviews, book recommendations, and explore the latest in gay pop culture. Welcome to episode 258 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast. I'm Will Knaus, and with me, as always, is my co-host and husband, Mr. Jeff Adams. Hello, everybody. This episode of the show is brought to you by our remarkable community on Patreon. We'll have more information on how you can join the community at the end of the show, along with a sneak peek of what we have coming up for you next week. Welcome back, Rainbow Romance readers. We are so glad that you can join us for another episode of the show. Yes, we are. Before we get into things this week, I want to take a quick moment to remind everybody that the Heart to Heart Volume 4 Anthology is only available for a few more weeks. Once we hit September 29th, it is gone forever. Now, this year's anthology has a paranormal twist to it, with everyone finding their love because of wishes that they leave on a podcast. There are 16 stories written by 18 authors. They're all so wonderful, and it has been such a pleasure for us to be a part of this anthology to raise money for some charities that support LGBTQ plus young people up in Canada. Now, our story, which is the story of said podcaster and his assistant, will never appear again. So if you want to see our story, you have to get the anthology. It's available right now on Kindle Unlimited, so you need to get your reads in by September 29th. Or, of course, you can pick up an ebook copy or a paperback copy if you want. And thanks to everybody who has picked up the story so far this year and helped all of us authors support these wonderful charities. Now, getting into books for this week, I've been such a fan of Julian Winters. This is actually the third summer that I have spent with one of his books, and I have to say, I hope this is a trend that never stops. First, there was Sebastian in Running With Lions, and then Remy in How To Be Remy Cameron, and now I've met Wes in The Summer of Everything. Julian always creates memorable, complex teenage characters, but he's really outdone himself with The Summer of Everything. He's got an incredible lead hero in this story. He has an amazing supporting cast. And I would even include the city of Santa Monica as a character itself within this cast. And given that we've all essentially just lost a summer this year, this book is even more meaningful as it allows us to have a summer full of friends, time on the beach, along with a love story and a whole lot of fun, and even some personal growth along the way too. Now, as the story opens, Wes is just back from spending a tiny bit of his last summer before college over in Italy with his parents. His dad is a chef who's opening a new restaurant there, and his mom is a best-selling YA author. Think something along the lines of like a Suzanne Collins. Wes is back inside of Monica to be with his friends, work at the Once Upon a Page bookstore, and try to get ready to go to college. His parents are being very parental types about, what's your major going to be? Are you ready to go? Do you have your things packed? It may sound like an easy summer, but it's actually far from it. Wes isn't all that sure that he even wants to go to college, much less know what he wants to study. And he's also got this major crush on his best friend, Nico. Nico and Wes have been best friends forever. And now he isn't really sure how to tell Nico that he wants to move things to the next level. 
And he's not even back at his job for very long before he learns that the bookstore is in trouble and might have to close. It's a lot for him to deal with, and luckily his friends are right there with him trying to help. And then there's his brother Leo. Uh, Wes and Leo don't totally get along. They used to, but wedges have been forming between them for years, and Wes has ended up caught up in some wedding planning for his soon-to-be sister-in-law that's taking up some of his time as well. Now, this book really soars because of Wes. Uh, He's a comic book geek. He's passionate about the bookstore and especially the comic section. Do not mess up his comic section because it can get ugly. He's freaked out about going to college and the whole adulting thing, especially since some of his friends seem to have their act together and know exactly what they want to do. It's an interesting dichotomy because he manages things like the bookstore so well, and he's also fiercely loyal to his friends, even when they piss him off. And yet he can't quite sort out his own life. Now, enjoying the summer is really crucial too, whether it's enjoying the time at the beach, maybe a party, going to the pizza place with everybody, and of course, all the time to the bookstore, which of course he gets caught up in trying to save because it's been such a pivotal part of his life and the community as a whole. There's a lot about Wes that even though he and I are like three decades separated in age, So much from high school and college and the things I did with close friends back then all came rushing back as I read this book, making this even more for me than I'd expected originally. Wes's friends are really everything. It's his squad, if you will. Not only is there Nico, who, as I mentioned, has been his best friend through all kinds of stuff, and now he really wants to figure out if he can become something more. Wes is so into his list. He has lists upon lists about how he might be able to get Nico to go out with him or what would happen if that didn't go well. Never has there been such a list maker. Uh, there's also Ella, who is essentially his, the sister that he has never had. Uh, there's the bookstore crew with Zay and Cooper and Kira and Lucas, who starts out as a customer and then becomes part of the squad. Bookstore owner Mrs. Rossi is right there along with them, too, and she's kind of a surrogate mom to some of these teenagers and also a beloved member of the community because the store has been open for so long. Julian manages to have a ginormous cast. I can't think of a book that has had so many people play core parts to it in in recent memory, but he also manages to keep it really intimate. I really marveled at how he pulled that off in a book that also manages to keep Wes at its core. Santa Monica really pulled on my heartstrings, too. I had a couple of years where I visited Santa Monica frequently for work, and I really loved this beach community. Uh, I know many of the locations that Julian calls out in this book, and it's really been a hard summer for Santa Monica for a lot of reasons, and I really liked reading this version of the city, which is really how I remember it. The Summer of Everything really has everything. I love the story. I love the summer these friends had. I love the bookstore story, because who doesn't love a bookstore story, and how the squad showed its love for this place and its owner. I loved meeting all these people, even Leo's brother, who starts off a bit of a dick, but some interesting things are revealed along the way there, too. I like how not everything is sorted out like I thought it would, too. Not every single plot point came together in the way that I had envisioned in my head. And I really like that. So if you can't tell, I I highly recommend that everyone take a trip to Santa Monica and hang out with Wes and his friends in the summer of everything. Now, I do have two questions for Julian. Why on earth is Wes talking about taking down his impossible poster? Seriously, Julian, what's up with that? And can we please, please, please get a book 
or books about Lucas and Cooper because I adored those two so much and I need to know more about them. Whether they have separate stories or maybe even a story together, I'd be good with that too. So yeah, I'm done gushing about this book now. (laughs) Now, I know you have a book to gush about as well. Boy, do I ever. I fell head over heels for Brandon Witt's latest. It's called Second Helpings. And this novella packs a novel's amount of real emotional punch in just a few pages. It was really incredible. Uh, The story is about Isaac, who returns to a small Missouri hometown for his 20th high school reunion. And he's about to ditch the potluck get-together. Yes, it really is that down home. (laughs) Aren't those supposed to be catered? I don't know. (laughs) He's about to leave when in walks the reason he came back. Grant. Now, Isaac and Grant were inseparable when they were growing up, but the day after graduation, Isaac left for New York, and Grant stayed behind. They drive around town together, getting a cherry limeade at the drive-in, and all the years away from each other slip away, and they head back to Grant's place. The next morning, Grant treats Isaac to breakfast in bed and convinces him to stay just one more day. They hang out, eating at the diner Grant runs with his sister, and their time together is nice, but Isaac can't help but be haunted by the reasons that he left town decades earlier. Grant tries to cheer him up by cooking for him, and that does the trick, but Isaac can't resist teasing Grant just a little bit about his homestyle way of cooking, cream of mushroom soup and mayo and all the rest. There is a whole lot of food in this story, which I'll get back to in just a second. Now, it comes out that Grant was married to a woman for many years, he's now divorced, which causes like a minor rift between our heroes, since it was Grant's insistence that they both come out as teenagers that partially pushed Isaac away. Nevertheless, they spend one last night in each other's arms before Isaac drives away the next day. It's in flashback that we learn the heartbreaking full story of his difficult family history and why he left Grant behind then and why he can't stay now. Like I said earlier, it's a real emotional gut punch. Like, seriously, it's really intense. Back in New York a few months later, Isaac is hanging with his bestie, trying to recreate the food he experienced with his brief time with Grant. It's his bestie who serves up a reality check. Like, why the hell is he spending so much time trying to recreate something when the real thing, the food and the man, are just a phone call away? Isaac invites him to come for a visit, taking Grant on an admittedly sappy carriage ride through Central Park, where they work out the issues of the past while dreaming up a new future together. It just so happens that Grant has already sold all of his stuff in Missouri and is looking to take a culinary leap in the big city. So they're happy and they're together just like it should have been all along. Oh God, I can't even begin to talk about how much I just love absolutely everything about the story. The heroes are both remarkable and they're kind and interesting. And as you know, second chances is one of my all-time favorite tropes and the way Brandon Wick expertly kind of addresses the issues of the past while showing us that Isaac and Grant are both capable adults able to work through the difficult stuff in order to get to their HEA. It just made me so warm and so fuzzy. I loved it so much. So great tropes, great characters, and great food. The recipes for Grant's dishes that he made for Isaac are featured in the back of the book. So if you're interested in learning about how to make the cookies or the casserole, it's all there. Don't worry, Brandon Witt does not leave you hanging. Now, for those of you who are into audiobooks, I highly recommend the audio, which is read by Drew Baca. 
like I said, it's the author who's created a really remarkable foundation, but it's Drew who takes the first person narrative to the next level and really provides a remarkable level of emotion that I haven't really listened to something quite like this in a long time. So if you can't already tell, I really love Second Helpings by Brandon Wedd. I think you'll like it a lot too. There you go. We have given you two books that you just need to go pick up because we're super excited about both of them. Now, while we've been busy reading, J. Scott Coatsworth has been working on a lot of book projects to get them out for you. He's got several re-releases along with new anthologies, and he's got even more coming up. I recently talked with him to learn what he's been up to. Scott, welcome back to the podcast. It's good to have you here. Thanks. Good to be here. We've got a lot of stuff to talk about because uh, you've been a busy guy this spring and summer. You're re-releasing a lot of your work. Yeah, it feels like I'm not doing much of anything. I've had a couple of shorts, but nothing of any length since last October. But a few months ago, I decided that I was going to kind of move away from doing the romance stuff. Not that I won't ever dip my toe in that particular pool again, because I've got a lot of friends there, and I do enjoy it from time to time. But I did pull the rights for my two trilogies. And so I'm re-releasing those. July 10th was the first one, and that was for the um, Liminal Sky series. I'm also kind of rebranding. I had the Liminal Sky and I had the um, Skythane Oberon series, and they both ended up kind of hooking together at the end in the same universe, which is kind of a cool Easter eggy sort of thing. So I'm rebranding them as the Liminal Sky Ariadne Cycle, and then the uh, Oberon is now Liminal Sky Oberon Cycle. So they're both part of the same thing, and they're going to carry covers that have uh, the same font face, the same kind of look, so they kind of tie together as an overall series, even though they have their own looks as trilogies. So yeah, by uh, December, I should have all six of my sci-fi novels back out again. Did you intend to make one big universe, or did that just kind of happen as you wrote? It just really kind of happened. Somewhere around book two on both series, I, I did this really stupid, weird thing where I decided to write two trilogies at once, and I went back and forth. So I did book one of one, and then book one of the other, and then two and two. I started to realize that maybe the generation ship in the first series ended up at the location of the second series. And so that's when I started kind of putting together a timeline and thinking how this whole thing might latch together. There's actually one item in particular that kind of runs through the entire series and shows up at the end. So you see it in the first book and you see it in the last book. So it was kind of cool to put those little Easter egg things in there for folks that really you know, read both series and, and kind of get into them and figure out what they are. You mentioned getting away from romance a little bit. What's What kind of brought that on and, and where do you see yourself kind of going forward at this point sure so i never had romance as one of my first loves i got into it in the beginning because uh, my husband mark was reading a lot of gay romance and he knew who a lot of the publishers were and i had decided to try to get back to writing and all these publishers had these calls for submissions out for anthologies and i thought well i could try that i could try breaking into it and see if i can get into one of those and i ended up getting my first story published the bear at the bar which is actually now out in its own was in its own version and now it's in the uh, spells and stardust anthology and that kind of got me going and so i ended up submitting to a number of publishers and i got published with three or four of them and that was my way in but i always kind of wrote things that were Angel would call them probably romance-ish. She set me straight early on that, you know, romance is its own thing and it has its own rules. And just because your story has a romance in it doesn't make your story a romance. It's only a romance if romance actually is the plot of the story. So my Oberon cycle, uh, Skythane, Lander, and Athani, they have a very strong romance thread to them, but they're arguably maybe not romance, even though they were published under that thread. 
But again, my first love was always sci-fi and fantasy, which I started reading when I was like in maybe 10 years old, 11 years old. And I always wanted to be published here. I want, that's where I wanted to go. So what I'm trying to do now is make the leap from the smaller publishers into the mainstream. And so my path right now is either finding an agent and getting into a big publisher or going it alone and doing it myself, or maybe again, being kind of a hybrid author and seeing if I can pull off both things. But my thrust now is to really write diverse science fiction fantasy that still is a big part of the queer community in it, um, but that is not romance-based. You, you've gotten some pickup in some magazines and things that kind of move you more towards that direction too recently. I had wanted to get into the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Association, SIFWA, which I always thought it was SFWA, but it's SIFWA. And there are two ways to do that. You can either get published in a magazine that pays a certain set rate per word, which was about four times, five times whatever I made on any anthology, or you can sell $3,000 worth of one story in one year, one book in one year. And there's some combinations you can make to get that amount, but basically those are the two levels. I was lucky enough to have a story and then a second one picked up by the late uh, Mike Resnick, who ran Galaxy's Edge. And it was actually the one story I, I'd sent it to him and it got bounced back to me by his gatekeeper, but I had sent it to him directly as well because he'd asked for a copy of it. And so I went back to him and I said, well, can I send you another one now? Because, you know, you didn't want the first one. And so actually, I wanted to send you a contract. I was just about to buy the thing from you. So that kind of going around the gatekeeper thing actually ended up working. So, so yeah, he bought a couple of the stories and that got me into SIFWA and I was later able to level up to the, the full membership in the organization. It's kind of hard to make that leap because, you know, people get used to you doing what you're doing. You get a certain following that's used to your current stuff. And yeah, it was never fully romance, but a lot of my fans are on the romance side. It's just, it's hard to break into the bigger market. But you're chipping away at it now, which is very cool. Yeah, I'm doing that, the whole agent thing. And I'm a very, like, obsessively organized person about things, generally speaking. And so when I decided to look for an agent, I created a spreadsheet, of course, first thing. I started out with about 12 or 14 agents, and I just kept adding to those over time. And there's a thing on Twitter called hashtag MSWL, which is manuscript wish list, which you can follow, and agents will pop up there what they're looking for. And sometimes they're absurdly specific. Like they'll say, you know, I want like a Victorian fantasy novel with zombies. And does anybody have that out there? Send it to me. But sometimes they're more like general, like I'm looking for marginalized writers writing science fiction. And so I'll pick up things from there. At my last check, I had 110 agent submissions out there of the book, the current book I'm working on, or just the one I'm working on for getting into an agent. And of those, I had about 70 come back and say no. And the rest are active ones. And I've still got a, a batch of ones to try at the same agencies if those ones reject me. So it's this huge process and it's a lot harder than I thought it would be emotionally, mostly. But I'm going to give it basically to the end of the year. I'll let this kind of cycle run through. I'm just about completed on another book. My thought is that I'll finish this through this batch of agents. And if and when nobody takes it, then I will start working on it and plan to release that on my own. And then do you know what uh, Pitch Wars? Are you familiar with Pitch Wars? Mm -hmm. is? Uh, that's coming up again this month. Basically, it's a mentoring competition where you put in your work and you try to connect with a mentor. And the mentor then, if they like you, works with you to try to get your manuscript ready for agents. And then they do an agent showcase in the spring. I did it last year with this book. It didn't get uh, picked up by anybody. I found it after the fact that there were about 130 manuscripts for every uh, mentor that was in the competition. So your odds of getting you know kind of a callback are low and your odds of being chosen are even lower. But I'm going to try it again. Sure. See what happens, you know, and then 
I will probably go the agent route with this one now that I've got all these agents on my list and see, you know, the one thing I'm trying to remember is that each one of these things is a learning experience. And, uh, you know, if it ended up just being on my own and publishing, I've got a friend of mine who's going to mentor me um, in kind of going that path, who's done very well over the last 12, 14 years with his own works. So, you know, that may be where I end up. I may just do self-published on everything. And what is coming up for new work? You've got all these re-releases happening through the end of the year. When do fans get to see something new coming into their TBR? The thing that I'm working on right now, I'd written this book called Last Run, this novella. This is one of my stories that I tried to get into some magazines to try to get into CIFWA. And it never did get picked up by anybody, so I ended up publishing it myself as a novella. Um, And it's a whole new world, I think. It's possible that it will end up being linked back to these other worlds. I'm not quite sure how because... In the connection of the other two series, I had destroyed Earth, and then I had to undestroy Earth to make it work. And in <laughs> this one, I destroy Earth at a different point in time. So I kind of have it in for Earth, I think. So I don't know. It may be its own separate universe. I'm thinking about linking it to some other works I've done. But the thing I'm writing right now is actually using this as kind of an origin story and then going about 150 years forward in the future from this book. And it's a trilogy that's, it kind of borrows from Anne McCaffrey in terms of having a sort of a fantasy sci-fi colonized world. There's even sort of dragons, but they're not really dragons. So I'm trying to make sure I differentiate that because I don't want to be, you know, here's a, here's a clone of, uh, of Pern basically. But it is letting me play in the fantasy world a bit, even though there's not magic per se in a way that I really haven't done for a while and really enjoying a lot and again trying to apply all those things that I learned from the last couple books and the lessons from the agent process to try to make this thing kind of shine so that's one number two is in the world of the the stark divide when I said I destroyed the earth some people survived and they were on the moon and so I, the book that I'm shopping to agents right now and that I will eventually release on my own if it doesn't get sold, is called Drop Knots. And it's the story of the people that survived back when this ship left the Earth and how, after the war cleared up enough, decided to go back down to Earth and what they found and, and kind of what comes from that. So that is a standalone right now. It might be a series at some point, but that's the one that's out there. And the last thing, it's kind of in the mix, other than my short stories that I have out, I plan to do the interim series at some point in the next year or two between the Liminal Sky Ariadne cycle and the Liminal Sky Oberon cycle that tells you what happened after this lets off, but before and then once they get to the new world. So kind of fill in those all those gaps. Now, you've been known for quite some time for organizing flash fiction anthologies. And this year, you're actually doing what it's not flash fiction called Fix the World. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so we've always done the flash fiction ones. This is our most recent innovation. came out about a month ago. And they're, you know, 300-word stories. We do 120 authors. That's through Queer Sci-Fi. But I've had this idea bouncing around in my head for a couple of years to do something hopeful in the sci-fi space. And it kind of linked up with this idea of taking our publisher, Other Worlds, Inc., and going beyond just publishing these things for queer sci-fi and publishing my own stuff. So the idea is basically there's a lot of stuff going wrong. You know, we've got racism, we've got inequality, we've got climate change, we've got all of the kinds of big and little issues around the world right now. And, and there's times when it feels just like it's overwhelming and like we're on this path to destruction and we may be the last generation that actually gets to live the way that we live. The next generation may have a lot less or the world may be in turmoil so I wanted to find a way to put something positive out. So the Fix a World anthology, the idea is that we take an existing world problem right now and you jump forward a bit and you figure out how we fixed it. 
and you write a story around that. And it doesn't have to be necessarily the thrust of the story, but it should be an important part of it. And it doesn't matter how big or small the problem is. You know, it can be as small as a genetic engineering to save a species. It can be as big as, you know, figuring out how to counteract climate change by putting satellites in space and reflecting light back to the, you know, out into the outer reaches. I'm really excited about it. And does it have a target release date? It's probably going to be in the spring. Fantastic. And talk to us a little bit about innovation from this year's flash fiction as well. How did that go this year? How many flash stories ended up in this year's anthology? Um, it's 120. It was 110 till last year. Then we bumped it up a little bit because we had so many submissions. We had, I think, 256 last year. And we did a little lower than that this year, uh, 235, which I was not sure at all how it was going to go. Because our, our launch period was March 1st, and then we ran through April 10th which put us like dead smack in the middle of when this whole thing just went crazy with the, the pandemic. So I was a little worried we weren't, we weren't going to get enough stories. And I was very pleasantly surprised when we actually did. So yeah, it's got 120 stories. They are heavy to sci-fi like they always are. But each year we've noticed we've gotten more and more stories beyond the kind of standard male-male stories. This year we actually had more female-female lesbian stories than we did male-male for the first time. And we also had a nice selection of kind of everything else of the LGBTIQA alphabet. So, yeah, it's a good collection. I was quite happy with it. Under your banner, you have so many things that kind of come under Otherworlds, Inc. and kind of the overall banner of things that you do. Several years ago, came up with Queer Romance, Inc., which is a great resource. Putting MM Romance into one place where it can be found and searched in a way that's easier than how you might do it on an Amazon or a Barnes & Noble site or something like that. You've now rolled out one for speculative fiction. Right. It kind of mirrors my own journey. So, you know, Queer Romance, Inc. <laughs> is where I was at the time. That one actually came about because of the collapse of uh, all romance ebooks, ARE. I remember talking at the time to uh, Cage Harper um, about possibly launching a site. Cage was looking at the possibility of doing a, like a co-op type site. And, you know, I said, I'm, we're looking at doing our own site. We had this idea for it. But, you know, if you guys do that, too, I would happily support that as well. I think the more competition, the better, the more people out there pushing this stuff, the better. That never happened, but Cage did end up helping me work on some of the basics on getting the site launched. And that site now um, gets about 35,000 visitors a month, um, so it's doing really well. I'd always wanted to have, again, the sci-fi thing going. And I thought about launching a sci-fi version of it the year after, but I really wasn't uh, connected well enough at the time into the sci-fi uh, market to authors to everything else. So I took the last couple of years and really worked on making those connections. And... Once the pandemic hit, it was kind of a scary time because one of our main sites is our travel site. And our travel site, for all effects and purposes, is probably dead until next year. Yeah, some people are traveling again. People are traveling in you know, New Zealand, Australia. People are traveling a bit in Europe. But the market is still really down. In the United States, it's just there just is no travel market right now. So we decided we needed to accelerate some of our other plans, some other things we had in the fire. And one of those was uh, liminal fiction. So... We ended up launching it. I couldn't actually get the domain liminalfiction.com because somebody else owned it. We launched with limfic.com. And then I found out his domain was expiring a few weeks later and made him an offer. And now we have both limfic.com and liminalfiction.com. So it worked out. The idea behind the site is basically that it's author-driven like Queer Romance Inc. That authors can put their own books on it, can promote them. And then we also do a lot of work to promote um, both frontlist and backlist books. And that it makes them findable in ways that you can't find them anywhere else. Specifically on Limfic, that means 
we have, I think, 135 subgenres of fantasy, sci-fi, horror, and science fiction. And so if you want that, you know, one book that is, you know, alien invasion, or you want the book that is werewolves and paranormal, or you want the book that is comedy horror, you know, you can actually drill down and find those things and then filter them by a lot of other things to locate exactly the kind of book that you want. So, yeah, we're excited about it. It's doing well so far. It's growing pretty quickly. It's going to take a while before it gets kind of up to where QRI is. But mm-hmm. I think eventually it will probably surpass it just because it's a mainstream market. And there's a lot of folks that read and write mainstream speculative fiction. So I understand you've got a little bit of show and tell for us as we wrap up. So I have my first Italian language book out. People who have read uh, the River City Chronicles will recognize the cover. This, this is something I had translated as I was actually writing the book because I have friends in Italy and couple of the characters are based on them. So I had to translate every week on my blog in Italian and publish it both in English and Italian. So I finally got the Italian version out a couple months ago, and it hasn't sold a single, no, actually, it sold one copy yesterday, but it's being read on Kindle Unlimited, and I've probably had about 15, 20 book reads in the last uh, two, three weeks. The one that hasn't been read yet, and this is my real show and tell thing, this is the dual language edition, so it's got both the English and the Italian. Oh. It's 800 pages long, and this is a doorstop. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> this one I, I basically put out there because Mark and I study Italian. And I thought it'd be cool for Italian study groups or, or schools to have a, a book they could use if they wanted that was an American story, but in both languages. So, yeah, I only have two copies of this because they're not cheap either. But, yeah, it's just kind of fun to have. And it's a good conversation piece. You know, it's it will hold your door open if you don't use it for anything else. So what's the best way for folks to keep up with you and keep track of new work and find out what you're doing across all the various outlets that you've got? So the best thing is to sign up for my mailing list. If you go to J. Scott Coatsworth, and it's just like it sounds, coats like coats or jackets, and then worth, W-R-T-H, dot com, um, there's a mail list sign up, and you will get a free ebook copy of Spells and Stardust, which is uh, my anthology of uh, eight of my short stories. And then I'll let you know in my regular newsletter, it goes out uh, once a week, what's going on with me. You can also find me on Facebook. I have a Facebook page and my own Facebook profile, J. Scott Coatsworth there. I'm on technically Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I don't do a whole lot with Instagram, but but I do put out regular notices on Twitter. So you can follow me on Twitter as well if you want to get notifications when I put those out. Fantastic. We'll link to those plus everything we talked about in the show notes so that folks can get there really easily. And thanks so much to Scott for giving us the scoop on all the books he's been working on. Now, if you're interested in learning more about the books or anything else that we've discussed in this week's show, all you have to do is go to the show notes page for episode 258 at BigGateFictionPodcast.com. Hey everybody, this is Kelly Reynolds and I host Boobies and Newbies, part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Every episode, I invite a romance reading newbie to read and review their very first romance novel, alongside me, a self-proclaimed romance novel addict. In just two seasons, we've covered a little bit of everything, from Alyssa Cole's Civil War-era romance, An Extraordinary Union. If we remade When Harry Met Sally and cast Gabrielle Union and and John Cho. Oh my god, I would so watch that! (laughs) To the badass lady billionaires in Lucy Scores The Price of Scandal. That would just like make my days if you had this big, buff British man in your tub. Not to mention our steamy spotlight episodes, where we discuss topics in and around Romance Landia, and even interview some of our favorite romance authors. Find and follow us on social media at Boobies Podcast, and catch up on previous episodes on your favorite podcast streaming platform. Hey there, this is Will. 
Did you know that not only do Jeff and I love to talk about gay romance every week here on the show, but we've also written one together too? It's true. The Hockey Player's Heart is the story of an NHL all-star who returns to his hometown and unexpectedly runs into the guy who he was head over heels for in high school. He didn't have the guts back then to tell him how he felt. Now he isn't going to let this opportunity slip through his fingers. But how can it ever work between a pro hockey player and a sweet small town guy afraid to give love a chance? The Hockey Player's Heart is available on Amazon in both print and ebook formats and can be read for free with your Kindle Unlimited subscription. This story is very special to us. It's filled with small town charm and two nice guy heroes with hearts of gold working hard to find their happily ever after. We hope that you'll give it a try. And now, back to the podcast. In addition to reading some great books and catching up with Scott, it was a tremendous honor to talk with author John Morgan Wilson. His Benjamin Justice Mystery series is a critically acclaimed classic, and this week the first book, Simple Justice, is being re-released. I got to talk to him about what it was like to revisit this book on its 25th anniversary. John, welcome to the podcast. It is so excellent to have you here. Thanks, Jeff, and, and I'm, it's really great to be here. I really appreciate the invitation. We are so excited to have you here to celebrate the 25th anniversary of Simple Justice, which kicked off the Benjamin Justice Mystery Series. Now, for those who are unfamiliar with this, tell us about the series. Well, Justice is a um, former reporter who's been ruined by a Pulitzer scandal of his own making, and he's grieving the loss of a lover to AIDS, living reclusively in West Hollywood, and the, the novel set in 1994, uh, which was a, a pivotal year in the midst of a crime wave and the, the AIDS epidemic peaking, and a lot going on, and there's always a lot going on in West Hollywood anyway, but he's kind of hiding out in a little apartment, trying to stay away from people. That's kind of his goal. He's a very hard guy to live with. He's abrasive, opinionated, volatile, sometimes violent, but readers still seem to be engaged with him, at least the ones who followed the series, and I had some really loyal readers through the years. Justice gets involved uh, when an old editor visits him and tempts him and guilts him into getting involved into an investigation involving a uh, murder outside a gay bar in Silver Lake, which is a heavily gay neighborhood just east of West Hollywood. And Justice gets involved almost against his will, but when he realizes a, a confession by a teenager to the murder outside this gay bar is suspect, there's something fishy about it. He sees things other people don't see, which is what made him a great investigative reporter. He just feels compelled to get more and more involved, which he does with an investigative reporter, Alexandra Templeton, a young black reporter who's really promising really has a great career ahead of her, but uh, really resents justice for the Pulitzer scandal that he got involved in. And together they wend their way through this very murky investigation, which becomes very dangerous. And in the end, it collides with justice's own uh, troubled past. And in a sense, Alexandra has to solve justice's dark past in order for the two of them to move together productively and solve the murder on a deadline at the end of the story. It sounds like there's a lot of actual history involved in the book. You touched on the AIDS crisis at the time, the crime wave that was happening in West Hollywood. Did all of that kind of blend together to inspire this particular story and then the series as well? 
You know, when I sat down to to write this, I had decades uh, as a journalist. I was 50 years old when I wrote the book. And I really was at a time I was moved into television reporting, first news, and then documentary writing. And I was kind of leaving my newspaper and magazine reporting behind for the most part. And when I sat down to write it, I just said, this book has to be different from anything you've done before. You've got to reach deeper and find something special because otherwise there's no point in writing a novel like this. And I just sat down to write, and the minute I started writing in the first person in Justice's voice, kind of just from my gut, uh, this character emerged and he took over, so obviously it was pretty close to me in my heart, and I wrote the first draft in six weeks. So there was just a lot of West Hollywood in it, a lot of me in it, a lot of my neighbors and my history and the whole gay movement and AIDS and everything else that had taken place over the last 20, 25 years of my life. I came out in my mid-20s. And uh, that was what ended up being simple justice, this kind of dark, violent, very sexually charged, emotionally charged book, which kind of set it apart from, from a lot of the mystery writing that was being done in those days, or at least that was getting noticed. And you mentioned your career in journalism, and you'd written some documentary-style television as well. Had you ever seen yourself writing a novel? If I probably took a hard, truthful look back at myself, it, it probably had been in the mix for a long time, but I didn't have the confidence to admit that. But after I read Walter Mosley's Devil in a Blue Dress at the suggestion of a friend, I started thinking very hard about writing a novel of my own. And please don't think that I'm comparing myself to Walter Mosley at all, but that book really inspired me because of the history in it, the politics in it, the social issues that he blended so beautifully with the character of E.Z. Rollins in the post-war years in south-central Los Angeles. And that's really when I started thinking about writing a novel of my own, And then in terms of the history of West Hollywood, the history of the gay movement that worked itself into simple justice, when I revised the book in the past six or eight months, I really tried to accentuate all that. I felt like I was writing a time capsule of 1994 in West Hollywood because West Hollywood has changed so much since then. It's really uh, development-driven now. It was never a quiet place when I lived here. But it's not the same city it was, and I I really wanted to capture that as I revised, and I I added a lot of historic detail and cultural detail in the revision. For people who may have read the original, how much new material would you say are they going to find if they pick up this re-release? Well, I hope the writing is better, because when Requeered Tales asked if they could reprint my books, they were going out of print, and uh, I have to give a nod to John Michelson, an author in Atlanta, who who interviewed me for his blog about three years ago. And thereafter, his Facebook LGBT crime writing group, they started discussing my novel and the fact that it was going out of print. And a group of them got together and wanted to volunteer their specialized skills to help me bring my justice series back, starting with Simple Justice. And that evolved into a full-fledged, royalty-paying publisher, Requeered Tales, 
put together by this handful of passionate readers out of this Facebook group. It was really quite remarkable what's happened. They've now got more than 30 titles in print with nearly 20 authors. They're rescuing out-of-print LGBTQ classics. And John started all that after he interviewed me for his blog. Could you have imagined at some point that the books would come charging back in such a big way 25 years after they came out? No, I never expected this. In fact, when this Facebook group contacted me, and John actually personally contacted me, he was the lead guy at the time, I was completely flabbergasted. I, to be honest, I was very skeptical that this could work. How could a bunch of readers, as smart and skilled as they were in their own ways, with some writers among them, bring back an entire mystery series? I, I just was very skeptical, but I encouraged it, and I, I was grateful. And then it eventually evolved over about a year into this remarkable publisher that has all these titles out, bringing back uh, all these LGBTQ classics that otherwise would be out of print. I wanted to go back to the question you asked about what changes I've made. Did I make many changes when I did the revisions to Simple Justice? I, I did quite a bit of of revision on the novel. When I read it, I was really unhappy with a lot of the writing. As I told a friend, I eliminated about six or eight cliches, really bad cliches, in the first two or three chapters that I'm sure I thought were brilliant at the time. There was a lot of ragged writing, and there were plot inconsistencies and other issues in the book. And I told Requeered Tales that I really wanted to revise the books before they came back into print, and that's what I spent much of the next year doing. I cut a couple of characters. I added two new characters, one quite important. I cut two subplots that were minor. I didn't mess with the structure too much, because when you start messing with the structure of a multi-suspect mystery series, when you get into the guts of that, you really can go down a rabbit hole, and I just didn't have the time with deadlines, and I frankly, I didn't have the physical and mental uh, stamina to just tear the book apart and start over. I wouldn't have published Simple Justice again if I couldn't have revised it first and cleaned up a lot of things that uh, I found wrong with it. So you're seeing, if not a new Simple Justice, a heavily revised Simple Justice and updated Simple Justice. And one thing that I was able to do with hindsight looking back was to add more historic and cultural history with concrete detail that I felt enhanced the book. And I hope I'm right. The readers will be the judge in the long run. And you wrote Simple Justice originally in, if I did the math right, it's like 1996. So you were writing two years back at that point, back into 1994. So coming at it now with a whole new lens with the time past, I can't imagine, you know, being able to historically set the importance of things that were going on in that time frame. I actually wrote it in 95. So I was looking back from about a year. And yeah, there was just so much I missed. And one of the things I added to the book as a thread, it's a very minor thread, but it, I felt it really helped uh, the motivation of Justice's old editor, Harry Brodsky, to come out of the woodwork and get him involved in this investigation, and that was the O.J. Simpson trial. That was all going on in the background at the time the novel was set, but it was never mentioned in the first novel. Now it's threaded in 
to the revisions of simple justice, and I did it purposely to sort of shore up some of the motivations in the book. And of course, when you were writing it and where it's set, we were in the midst of political upheaval then and the epidemic of AIDS. And now as you're bringing this book back out, we're in another political upheaval and a new epidemic with COVID-19. What's it like to see those parallels? Yeah, that was really interesting for me as a writer because 1994 was a pivotal year. That was when Bill Clinton had a shaky first term and the Republicans put up quite a challenge and I believe they took control of Congress. So you had a pivotal election year with a Republican resurgence. You had a crime wave that was virtually at its peak, uh, certainly in terms of violence in Los Angeles. You had AIDS peaking as an epidemic. You had equal rights for women as a huge issue. And then you switch to 2020 and all these similar issues, these parallel issues, if you will, going on as I'm rewriting. And I think it probably affected my rewriting as much unconsciously as consciously. Two characters really got my attention as I revised. One was Senator Masterman's son, for those who've read the book already. I renamed him Casey, by the way. He doesn't have the same first name as his father because that became a nightmare when I had him in the same scene trying to refer to each of them. But Casey, I felt, needed more weight and clarity as a character, so I really worked on him. And then Alexandra Templeton the young black reporter who partners with Justice on this murder investigation, I felt that as an author, I had to give her more respect. She's always a strong character in the book, a very sympathetic character, but I just felt she needed more dignity. She was the, probably the character that got the most work, even though a lot of what's changed about her and what I hope has improved about her is maybe in nuance instead of broad changes. A lot of it's in the conversation and the interplay between her and Justice. And so there were definitely some changes that were influenced by the period that we're in now. Are you making similar revisions to the rest of the books that will be coming out? One by one, by one, by one, by one, I'm going to revise each one unless uh, I just collapse and can't do it. Simple Justice, I think, is the one that's needed the, the most work. It was my first novel. I was learning as I wrote. It was probably the most complex. I think the plot needed the most work. I don't think any of the other books will take that much work. I know the second one is going to need some because it was my second novel. And while I was writing that novel, I got a really nice note from Michael Conley, who had won the Edgar Award for Best First Novel a few years before me for Black Echo. And I had never met him, but we'd worked together at the LA Times uh, at the, around the same time, and our years paralleled there. And I had interviewed him for Writer's Digest before my book came out. And he sent me a note saying, congratulating me on winning the Edgar a few years after him, the same Edgar for Best First Novel, and said, just a suggestion, be careful. Second novels are often much harder to write, and you might want to give yourself more time. And he was absolutely right. Revision of Justice is the second one, and it was a very tough novel to write because I used up so much in the first novel, I felt empty in a sense. 
use things up creatively, emotionally, in terms of background and things I wanted to write about, things I wanted to express. And I sort of had trouble finding what the hook was for me in the second novel. And uh, it was a real hard novel to write. Having said that, for any writers that are listening, I would never advise holding things out of your first novel to save for your second novel. (laughs) Because if you don't write the best novel you can write, the novel you were born to write, the first time out, there's unlikely going to be a second novel. So I would say give it your all in the first one and then just plan on working harder on that second book. It'll work out. You just maybe have to dig a little deeper. For the mysteries that Justice is solving, where did the inspiration for those come through the books? Was it kind of a ripped from the headlines thing or just the fun of making stuff up? All over the place. Sometimes headlines, sometimes a piece of music, sometimes looking out my window at something visually. You know, it's it, it, they're really all over the place. Plotting is the hardest thing for me. It's really difficult. I tend to find my characters through dialogue. Once I get them interacting and talking, I learn more about them, and then I go back and and do a lot of revision later trying to strengthen them. Plotting is difficult. I really admire mystery writers who come up with these ingenious, clever, intricate plots that you feel you've never quite seen before. I'm not that writer. I have to work really hard at it. But, you know, you have to go with your strengths and weaknesses, and you have to emphasize your strengths in trying to work hard and shore up your weaknesses, and that's basically what I do with those. And honestly, I can't remember the plots of most of my novels, so I'm going to be rediscovering them (laughs) with any readers out there who might be picking up the series. I'll be rediscovering them before I... I revise those because I really don't remember the plot intricacies and many of the characters and plot twists in these books. I'm rediscovering them as I sit down to revise. Opening a book I haven't seen or read in 25 years, except for passages maybe at at readings, uh, and rediscovering it and getting down to rewriting, uh, it's a wonderful process. I love it, and some writers absolutely hate the rewriting process because it's extremely arduous you just have to really commit and clear your head and find that thing that separates professional writers from less professional writers which is that objectivity you have to develop in which you become the strictest judge of your own work and you have to become kind of your own boss and the toughest boss you've ever had and look at your work with as much humility as possible and realize it can be made better. If I had a chance now, (laughs) I'd probably sit back down with simple justice for another couple of months (laughs) and go through it three or four times. I drove Requeered Tales crazy and I apologized to them. They were so patient with me. And uh, it, it really was months of work, and I missed a deadline or two, and they were so patient and good to me. And I r- will be forever grateful for that. You mentioned the Edgar Award a few minutes ago, which Simple Justice won when it came out as Best First Novel. And the series also got nominated and won multiple Lambda Literary Awards over its time. 
What do you think about the series caught so many people's attention? I was very, very lucky. Uh, I don't know if it's true, but I've been told by a number of people through the years that was the first gay-themed mystery novel by an openly gay author to win an Edgar. And it was a pretty big deal. And it, it certainly made a big difference for me because gay novels just weren't getting a lot of mainstream attention at the time outside of Joseph Hansen and Michael Nava. Everybody pretty much struggled to get any attention. And then the Edgar kind of reinforced that. And it really helped the series. It, the series ended up going out of print after eight books. But the Edgar was an important part of keeping it alive for 10, 12 years. Simple Justice is also coming out with a new forward from Christopher Rice, who, of course, is one of the contemporary kind of torchbearers for mystery and thriller. How did he come to be involved? Well, Christopher and I have been friends for a long time, going way back to, I wish I could remember the year the Lammies were in Chicago and we were both up for a Lammy in the best gay men's mystery category. And I met him there and found out that he lived here in West Hollywood, just a few blocks from me. And we became friends. And honestly, after I'd talked to him and after I saw how smart he was, how insightful he was, in addition to being such a good writer, I realized he was kind of, to me, the next torchbearer for gay mystery writing, gay crime writing. I really felt that strongly, and I went out of my way to befriend him and try to introduce him to things like Mystery Writers of America, Sisters in Crime. I remember I, I in fact, he alludes to this in the foreword, I suggested that he read Ross MacDonald because he was real keen on reading as much mystery writing as he, as he could, and his mom had suggested to him Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett, and I added Ross MacDonald to that because he was my favorite of that whole genre, in addition to many other writers I really enjoyed. But Chris and I became friends, and we you know, kind of supported each other in different ways through the years. And so when the book was getting ready to go into production, I just shot him an email. We hadn't seen each other in a while, but I asked him if he'd write the foreword. I can't think of anyone else I would ask, and I, I kind of hoped he would kind of put Simple Justice, but also Joseph Hansen, Michael Nava, and others in historical perspective, which he did. And he just wrote a very, what I thought was an eloquent and, as usual, very insightful, smart, intelligent forward for the book. It was awfully flattering toward me, and I'll take it, but I was kind of blushing as I read it. He was very sweet, and I think that forward stands on its own as a piece of writing, and perhaps he'll find some future mileage for that particular piece, because it's something I feel people should read, not because of me, but because of what he has to say about LGBT writing in general and gay activism and, and other issues that are important to all of us. Well, we're really excited that this is coming back out. And we're so very happy you could come to the podcast and, and tell everybody about this 25th anniversary edition. And we'll certainly be linking in the show notes to this particular book, which comes out the very week that this episode drops. And we'll keep everybody up to date as the future editions come out as well. Thank you so much for being here. It's been a real treat to talk to you. Jeff, it's been my pleasure. And uh, please give my best to your hubby. 
and good luck with the show in the future. You're doing great things with it, and it's really an honor to be on. This week's interview transcript has been brought to you by our community on Patreon. If you'd like to read the author interview for yourself, simply head on over to the show notes page for this episode at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. And thanks again to John for taking the time to talk to us. And thanks to Requeer Tales for bringing this series back. We've talked a number of times how we are big fans of Requeer Tales for bringing all of these classics back to market for the first time, sometimes in decades. If you want to know more about them, you could check out our interview with Matt Lubbers-Moore, who's one of the co-founders from episode 222. All right, everyone. I think that'll do it for this week's show. Now, coming up next in episode 259, we've got a special episode featuring authors Ilya Winters and Philip William Stover. A few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of hosting an event at Barbara's Bookstore in Chicago for Ilya and Philip, and we've got that entire conversation coming to you in next week's show. Yeah, good stuff. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode and that you've discovered some new books to add to your TBR pile. And if not, don't worry, we'll be back again next week with more recommendations and author interviews. So until next time, everyone, please stay strong, be safe, and then above all else, keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. New episodes of this show are available every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. You can help support this show with a monthly pledge through Patreon. For more information about joining our community and the bonus content we deliver, check out patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast. I'm Kurt Graves. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.